Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This lecture is a continuation of our adult reconstruction series. In this lecture, we will be discussing total knee arthroplasty designs and non-operative and operative management of knee arthritis, not including total knee arthroplasty. We will have subsequent lectures addressing techniques of total knee arthroplasty, revision knee arthroplasty, and complications associated with total knees. First, let's go over some of the common designs encountered during total knee arthroplasty surgery. The first design we will talk about is the cruciate retaining total knee replacement. This design depends on a competent posterior cruciate ligament. The PCL is important in that it provides the tether to allow for femoral rollback. So what is femoral rollback? Femoral rollback refers to the posterior translation of the femoral condyles with progressive knee flexion. The rollback motion helps to prevent posterior impingement during deep knee flexion and in the normal knee, this is controlled by the anterior cruciate and posterior cruciate ligaments. So again, the posterior cruciate ligament is important for providing the tether that causes femoral rollback during knee flexion in a PCL retaining total knee design. One term that you will hear referred to frequently when it comes to total knee design is constraint, as in the cruciate retaining design has minimal constraint. Constraint refers to the ability of the prosthesis to provide stability to varus and valgus stress as well as flexion and extension if the patient has significant ligamentous attenuation or bone loss. With severe laxity or bone loss, standard primary knee replacements, including cruciate retaining and posterior stabilized, may not provide enough stability. Constraint increases from cruciate retaining to posterior stabilized to a varus valgus constrained knee to a rotating hinge platform. Increasing levels of constraint transfer loads to the bone prosthesis interface and increase the risk of subsequent loosening. So who should get a cruciate retaining knee? The optimal patient for a cruciate retaining prosthesis will have minimal bone loss and soft tissue laxity. Ideally, they will have a varus deformity of less than 10 degrees and a valgus deformity of less than 15 degrees. The reason for this minimal deformity is that soft tissue balancing is more difficult with a cruciate retaining design. One advantage of the cruciate retaining design is increased bone conservation and that less distal femur needs to be cut in comparison to the cruciate substituting design. Also, the kinematics more closely resemble the native knee, and proprioception is provided by the retained posterior cruciate ligament. With minimal bone resection, the native joint line is more reliably recreated. However, if the posterior cruciate ligament were to fail, it would lead to instability and subluxation. It is imperative to balance the flexion and extension gaps meticulously. A tight flexion gap caused by a tight PCL can increase the rate of polyethylene wear. It is important not to release too much of the PCL, however, because a loose flexion gap can result in instability and subluxation. Instability in a cruciate retaining knee typically manifests as knee effusion and subluxation as well as pain when bearing weight on a flexed knee. Another very common design used for primary total knee replacement is the posterior stabilized knee. With this design, both the ACL and PCL are sacrificed. Without a PCL, the femoral rollback is supplied by the geometry of the prosthesis. A cam connects the medial and lateral condyles of the femoral component. On knee flexion, the cam abuts a central post on the tibial polyethylene component. The cam pushes on the back of the post as the knee flexes, pushing the tibia anterior and the femoral condyles posterior, thereby causing femoral rollback. Because of the cam and post design, this implant is slightly more constrained than the PCL retaining design. However, 
The cam design is not without its disadvantages. Unique to this design is the femoral cam jump. With the flexion gap too loose, the femoral cam can jump from its position posterior to the post over the top, locking itself anterior to the post, thereby dislocating the knee. So what do we do if someone has jumped the post? Well, first off, we try to reduce it. These dislocations can typically be closed reduced by placing the knee at 90 degrees of flexion and performing an anterior drawer maneuver, thereby pulling the post back anterior to the cam, reducing the knee. Ultimately, however, these patients will require a revision surgery to correct the loose flexion gap. Other unique disadvantages of the cruciate substituting design are patella clunk syndrome and polyethylene wear of the tibial post. Patella clunk syndrome occurs when scar, typically superior to the patella, gets trapped in the femoral box when moving from flexion to extension. The clunk usually occurs between 30 and 45 degrees of flexion. Most times, this can be addressed easily with arthroscopic debridement of the scar tissue. The tibial post also experiences a significant amount of stress from the femoral cam. Aseptic loosening and osteolysis have been found to be directly related to the amount of polyethylene wear on the tibial post. Hyperextension of the knee can also cause the anterior aspect of the femoral box to abrade the anterior post as well. So how about bone resection in the cruciate substituting design? As we mentioned earlier, to place this design, more bone needs to be resected than what is done in the cruciate sparing design. Because of the larger amount of bone resection, the joint line may be more difficult to recreate. Elevation of the joint line will result in patella baja. The maximum that the joint line can be elevated and still preserve the kinematic function of the ligaments is 8 millimeters. Indications for a cruciate substituting design versus a cruciate retaining design are patients with inflammatory arthritis, a deficient or absent posterior cruciate ligament, and any previous patellectomy. The next design that is frequently encountered during primary total knee arthroplasty is a mobile bearing design. This is a cruciate substituting design in which the tibial polyethylene insert can rotate on a polished tibial base plate. This has shown equivalent survivorship with the aforementioned fixed bearing designs. The minimal constraint within the design theoretically reduces polyethylene wear. If, however, the flexion gap is too loose, the tibial component can spin out posterior to the femoral component, locking it into place, and this is known as bearing spin-out. These patients will need to be closed reduced and eventually undergo revision surgery to adjust a lax flexion gap. Increasing up our constraint hierarchy, we reached our constrained, non-hinged design. This implant has a large tibial post and a deep femoral box cut that provides varus and valgus stability, as well as some rotational stability. This is an excellent choice if the lateral collateral or medial collateral ligament is incompetent. As mentioned previously, however, the increased constraint transfers forces between the implant bone interface and increases the risk of aseptic loosening. Finally, we have our constrained hinged design. This design has a bar linking together the femoral and tibial components and a large intramedullary stem component to provide additional stability. This prosthesis is used with complete ligamentous laxity during tumor reconstruction surgery and with massive bone loss and ligamentous laxity secondary to a neuropathic joint. As you can imagine, a significant amount of bone needs to be resected during implantation, and of course, a high degree of constraint within this design can lead to aseptic loosening. Overall, keep in mind the hierarchy of constraint between the different designs. Know that increasing constraint increases the risk of aseptic loosening. Know the specific mechanisms of failure, including cam jump and cruciate substituting knees and bearing spin-out and mobile bearing knees. Know that a Charcot knee or neuropathic knee requires additional constraint to achieve stability. 
Okay, now let's discuss some of the approaches used to perform a total knee arthroplasty. There are several different possible choices to make when you're performing your total knee. With a primary total knee, the approach used is typically dictated by surgeon preference. For revision surgery, prior incisions may dictate the course. If multiple incisions exist, use the most lateral incision as the blood supply flows from medial to lateral. Typical incisions include the medial parapetella, the mid-vastus, the sub-vastus, and minimally invasive incisions. For more complex or revision cases where scar tissue and exposure may become problematic, some surgeons will perform a quadriceps snip, a VY turndown, or a tibial tubercle osteotomy. Quadriceps snip can provide increased visibility without altering the postoperative course. Again, a quadriceps snip can provide increased visibility without altering the postoperative course. A VUI turndown is performed by extending the medial parapetella approach from its proximal most incision point distally and laterally. This provides excellent visualization, however it may leave the patient with an extensor lag. The tibial tubercle osteotomy also provides excellent exposure, but it has the inherent risk of non-union. A tibial tubercle osteotomy is an excellent option for a patient with patella baja. We are not going to go into the specifics of each approach, just know that if an extensile approach is required, the quadriceps snip, VY turndown, and tibial tubercle osteotomy provide excellent exposure. Let's finish off the talk by discussing some of the common treatments for osteoarthritis of the knee. Obviously, as with all orthopedic procedures, non-operative treatment must be considered prior to any operative intervention. This is particularly important for joint arthroplasty. Many patients with severe arthritis on radiographs are minimally symptomatic, while others with only a small amount of arthritis can be severely symptomatic. It is important to keep all subjective and objective findings in mind when formulating a treatment plan that will best serve the patient. Non-operative management includes weight loss, exercise, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and physical therapy. As most of you know, this treatment plan can be more difficult to convince patients of than surgery. The AAOS clinical practice guidelines for knee arthritis have been tested in the past. They strongly recommend exercise, physical therapy, and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories as a first-line treatment for knee arthritis based upon high-quality studies. They could not recommend for or against the use of intraarticular corticosteroid injections, intraarticular PRP, Tylenol, opioids, pain patches, or medial unloader braces. The guidelines state they cannot recommend the use of hyaluronic acid injections for patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee. Furthermore, they do not recommend performing arthroscopic lavage and debridement for patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis. We will discuss the operative clinical practice guidelines following the total knee arthroplasty section. So what choices do we have for patients with unicompartmental disease? So first, let's talk for a second about osteotomies around the knee and unicompartmental arthroplasty. In patients with unicompartmental arthritis that are less than 50 years old, an unloading osteotomy may be an excellent option. For patients with medial unicompartmental arthritis and varus knee alignment, a medial opening wedge high tibial osteotomy may be used to unload the compartment. It is important that the patellofemoral joint and lateral compartment showed no evidence of disease for an optimal outcome. This procedure typically corrects varus caused by the proximal tibia. The goal is to correct the mechanical axis of the leg while maintaining the joint line perpendicular to that of the mechanical axis. Contraindications include inflammatory arthritis, which is obvious because it's unlikely that a singular compartment would be affected with an inflammatory process. Other contraindications include a flexion contracture greater than 10 degrees, a lack of range of motion of at least 90 degrees, medial compartment bone loss, 
a varus thrust gait indicating ligamentous insufficiency, and as mentioned, lateral compartment disease. Patients tend to do worse over the age of 60 and with a varus deformity of greater than 10 degrees. Complications can be technique-specific. Patients that undergo a closing wedge osteotomy may develop patella baja deformity and loss of the tibial posterior slope. The opening wedge technique patients have a high risk of non-union at the osteotomy site and collapse of the opening wedge resulting in valgus angulation. For patients with unicompartmental disease of the lateral compartment, a varus-producing distal femoral osteotomy to correct the valgus deformity may be performed. The valgus deformity may stem from a hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle. This has been tested in the past. I'll mention it now and reinforce it later, but know that when you're making your distal femoral cuts, if a patient has a valgus deformity secondary to a hypoplastic lateral femoral condyle, a posterior referenced cutting system cannot be used. If the posterior condylar access is used, it will lead to internal rotation of the femoral component and patellofemoral maltracking. If you did not quite get this, don't worry, we'll talk about it again during the patella tracking section. Again, indications for a varus producing distal femoral osteotomy include unilateral lateral compartmental arthritis without arthritic changes in the medial and patellofemoral compartments. Contraindications include inflammatory arthritis, prior medial meniscectomy, greater than 15 degrees valgus deformity, and a flexion contracture greater than 10 degrees. All right, now how about unicompartmental arthroplasty? In patients with unicompartmental arthritis, a unicompartmental knee arthroplasty may be a viable treatment option. Advantages over a total knee arthroplasty include a quicker recovery time, less postoperative pain, shorter hospital stay, and more normal knee kinematics. It is also shown to have a faster rehabilitation and fewer short-term complications than redirectional osteotomies. Survivorship of the implant is, however, less than that of a traditional total knee arthroplasty. The ideal patient for a unicompartmental knee arthroplasty is older than 60, relatively low demand, with a low BMI. It is important that they localize their pain to the arthritic compartment. If their pain is more anterior or global, it is likely patellofemoral or diffuse tricompartmental arthritis, and they would see much less benefit from the procedure. Contraindications include inflammatory arthritis, ACL deficiency, a fixed varus deformity greater than 10 degrees, or a fixed valgus deformity greater than 5 degrees. By fixed, it means a deformity that is not correctable to neutral on examination. Other contraindications include a range of motion less than 90 degrees or a flexion contracture greater than 10 degrees. It goes without saying that tricompartmental arthritis is also a contraindication. Lastly, unicompartmental knee arthroplasty is contraindicated in a young patient or those with a very high BMI. When performing a unicompartmental knee arthroplasty, it is important not to overcorrect the mechanical access of the knee when placing the implant, as this will place increased load on the resurfaced compartment. Complications include tibial stress fractures and the settling of components. Stress fractures are associated with patients over 82 kilograms and involve the tibial metaphysis. The stress fracture will present as a patient with a pain-free interval after surgery, followed by spontaneous proximal tibial pain. Results of the unicompartmental knee arthroplasty have been promising. Lateral compartmental knee arthroplasties have shown equivalent results to medial. Survivorship at the 15-year interval has been as high as 93%. Reasons for failure include the development of arthritis in the adjacent compartment, poor implantation technique with undercorrection at the time of surgery, and component loosening. Patella impringement on the component also tends to cause pain and polyethylene wear, leading to failure. Finally, let's talk about isolated patellofemoral arthritis. 
The typical cause for isolated patellofemoral arthritis is a previous patella fracture or maltracking of the extensor mechanism. In older patients, a total knee arthroplasty is preferred to a patellofemoral arthroplasty. If a patellofemoral arthroplasty is performed, meticulous soft tissue balancing to ensure appropriate patella tracking is required for a successful outcome. All right, that concludes our talk on knee arthroplasty designs in the non-operative and operative management of knee arthritis. The next talk will address total knee arthroplasty, revision knee arthroplasty, followed by another talk on complications associated with total knee arthroplasty. As always, please check back frequently for lecture topic updates and additions. Thanks for listening.